0: Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third-generation, 120-year-old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now, I work with entrepreneurs, privately-held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ann Anne is a business entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur. She created and ran the Institute of Entrepreneurial Excellence, one of the longest standing university-based entrepreneurial programs in the US focused on family enterprises. And during that time, she worked with more than a thousand companies spanning nearly 30 years prior to her own succession there. Anne's expertise in private company succession, board governance and family philanthropy stems not only from her experience with her family's fifth generation company but also from her work with the family office exchange and national philanthropic trust our conversation covered a lot of ground and shared super valuable insights for how to break the tradition of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations i hope you enjoy the episode as much as i did thanks for tuning in and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. You have such amazing experience with family businesses and succession. I feel like you're perfect for this show. I understand you're in a fourth
1: generation family business. That is right, with the fifth generation not only on the horizon, but actively involved. So it keeps on moving. So tell me about the company. So the company was started really in 1890, you know, thereabouts. And we started actually in growing trees and cutting trees and planing trees for lumber and distributing that through the southeast. So we're in Brunswick, Georgia, between Savannah and Jacksonville. And as the generations moved forward, we got out of tree growing. And, of course, you know, another family at that time bought everything up, which was the Weyerhaeuser family, which still exists today, the Weyerhaeuser family, very active family, but not necessarily in operations these days. And then we moved forward to distributing lumber. and, And then in the third generation, we got involved in building supply. So building supply for the contractor, not necessarily for the residential you know home tinker, you know environment. And so we've been in a good place there on the coast. We we follow the swings of the commercial and housing markets obviously as contractors have been through, you know, the dynamics up and down through the especially over the last 15 years as we've had, you know, the mortgage crisis and everything come to a halt and then the restart and now there's been some quietness. Uh, not too much, but some quietness over the um, pandemic. So, ups oh, Understandable.
0: And downs. Of course, ups and downs. And I noticed on your LinkedIn, it made me smile. You have listed this business on your profile, and the start date is 1905. So, you've been with the company a really long time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, 1890 is really when the business started, but my great-grandfather was with another fellow. So, in 1905, my great-grandfather bought out the other you know, side and, he's, and it's been a single family owned ever since. That's great. Did you work in the company? No, I didn't. And it's an interesting story that you asked that. So in 19, well, I'll say, I won't say the year because my mother might hear this. So it's through my mother's <laughs> side of the family. And my grandfather, second generation, had two boys and two girls. My mother being you know, one of those girls. And so my grandfather at the time said, and and this is, you know, we have to understand my mother's 93, her sister's 91. You know, his mantra was, you know, you need to go to college and find a husband and get married and, you know, have a household and do those things that traditional Southern women did at the time. The boys would have the operating company, the girls would have real estate. And that's how in his mind real estate was passive. Their husbands could come on and take that on, you know, as they move forward. And and it wasn't a bad deal. You know, you look at St. Simon's Island, Jekyll Island, Sea Island are the three islands that we primarily service over time. And so owning real estate there was not a bad deal. So that was in his mind how to take care of the girls, quote unquote, and make sure that the boys were okay. So that became the mantra up until you know late in the third generation. And girls could not work in the operating company. It was only the, the, the boys. And I would say probably, I'll get the year you know particularly wrong, but I'll say early 60s. My aunt joined the company. And the reason that she did is she said to her husband, my uncle, who was CEO at the time, listen, I don't like this idea that some weeks we have good paychecks and other weeks we have nothing. And I have three boys I have to feed and in a household to run. And I need to go and find out what's happening in the company. And so he said, oh, you can't do that. You know, dad would really be upset. No girls in the company, et cetera. She came from a grocery owning family. So she understood keeping your finger on the pulse of business, on numbers, on Slim part profit margins, you know all of those good things, so she came in and took a look around, and the rest is history. She was horrified at what she saw. My uncle, her husband, and my grandfather had given credit to every contractor that asked for it, and back then, you know, in a small town, that was how things went, but there was no credit, there was no you know collateral, there was no you know it was a promise like yeah, I'll pay you one day you know kind of thing and so from that period forward her name is Marcel. If you wanted credit you had to go see Marcel. And Marcel did not give credit easily. And so I I look at her as being a key point in time of really changing the pathway of the company, making it much more profitable, running with good business processes, and that's why even today when I work with families it's you know really look at the talent throughout your family, not just those that are in the business, but those that marry into the family, those that, you know, graduate from college or other activities, you know, within the family and look at, you know, how do we tap in all of the skills of the family, not just, you know, those at any particular point in time. I love
0: Aunt Marcel. She sounds awesome. Wouldn't we love to sit with her and talk to her about her experience from the early 60s? Wow, what a change she made to the company. She did. I wanted to ask a follow-up question about that, about the men working in the operating business and women working in real estate. Was that cultural in the South at the time, or was
1: that something specific to your family? No, I think it was absolutely cultural. You know, women did not get involved in business, and especially, you know, when you you were from a prominent Southern family. my Not only was my grandfather, you know, the, you know, second generation leader of this you know, significant family business locally that provided great employment and, you know, lots of opportunities, you know, for vitality within the community. But also he was mayor for a number of years on and off. My uncle was county commissioner. I mean, we were really infused in the community. And so having two daughters who would go off to college and marry well was a typical, you know, Southern process at that time in a small town. And that was that was his hope. Unfortunately, I'll say both of my mother and her sister married well, but they've also had incredible careers themselves. And so, he got part of his wish. Uh, well, he—I'm
0: sure—ultimately was very proud of them. Did your mother end up working in the company too?
1: No, not at all. In fact, my mother is a PhD psychologist, has built you know an incredible career in that field for herself, continues to provide. You know, some consulting and engagement today at the age of 93, but she really took that idea, of, and this is sort of the mantra of my family: everybody does something. So from an early age on, there was no trust fund babies. There's nobody hanging out waiting for something to be done for you. And I really give you know the third generation a lot of credit for this. My mother, her sister, her two brothers, everybody does something, and they really took that mantra to heart and, and worked hard. At creating a life for themselves, some in the business, some outside the business, always owners at some level. And that became important for her in particular. So she's building this esteemed career as a forensic and grief consultant, as well as, you know, professional up till the time she retired. Well, I love the story
0: of strong women. So instead of steel magnolias, we have lumber magnolias, but they sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I was curious about you, so your choices when you were coming up through the family and understanding the family business, seeing your aunt Marcel running it, did you
1: think, "Hey, this is something you wanted to do," or are you eager to do something different? Well, my career had taken me on different paths and I was outside of the Brunswick, Georgia area and I actually settled here, you know, in Pittsburgh, and as I was going to the University of Pittsburgh and looking at various opportunities that provided me here, I met my husband. And so at that particular point in time, he, he had his own company and we, you know, was not transferable to another state. So, you know, as we got married and, and started to raise our family, that was, I was settled here. And so, I mean, I would say my biggest role with our family business has been governance. And, and that is, that I was a confidant and a, you know, a consultant, a board advisor to my aunt and uncle as they were going through you know, their development of the company, moving into building supply, which was a big, you know, foray at the time. As I was looking at what was going to happen, or what did I want to do next, I should say, I ran into a young couple who were in the process of creating locally the first franchise of home delivery, fast delivery of pizza. And that became four-star pizza. And I spent many years as they were building up to, I think at the very end, when I left, we were probably at around 150 units around the world. And so in that whole arena, I'll say in, by 1987, Wesley Posmar, who was the chancellor at the University of Pittsburgh and someone I had gotten to know while I was a student there, along with his wife, Mildred, had asked me, you know, we have this small entrepreneurship program called the Small Business Development Center here at the university and it's really struggling and can you come in and take a look at it because you know you're this entrepreneur you're running around doing this or that so i said sure i'll come take a look i'll do what i can to help but i'll never work at a big bureaucracy and that began my 28 uh, year run at the university of pittsburgh and uh, that sounds and like famous last words i'll never work <laughs> there and then
0: you're there for almost 30 years that's yeah. incredible i didn't realize that i love that story so it really opened your eyes because they contacted you. It wasn't something that you were thinking about.
1: No, it wasn't something I was thinking about at the time. And it just ended up to be a great opportunity because entrepreneurship was a total unknown, not only at the University of Pittsburgh, but at all universities and colleges. You know, it's much more known today. And so that really led me to, to look at all of the opportunities in entrepreneurship that could happen. And the number one was family business. And that's when I said, you know, we really need to create a program for family businesses. It was the early 90s by then. And a lot of, um, you know, our family businesses locally were servicing the steel industry. And and many of them were waiting for the steel industry to come back. But really by the late 80s, it wasn't coming back. And even if it would one day, it wasn't going to come back at the level that it had been. And so they were really struggling, whether they were a supplier of product or metal or transportation or, you know, temporary help or whatever it was. um, Those family businesses had to reinvent and reignite. And I said, we could do that here, you know, in terms of the family, you know, creating a family enterprise center. And that's what we did. And I had some of the most incredible uh, leaders in Western Pennsylvania in their family businesses you know, agree after I courted them, you know, obviously, and asked them saying, we need to do this here because the, you know, family businesses are the rock bed of any community and still are today. They're the ones that don't, you know, pick up and move because there's an incentive, you know, financial incentive to relocate to another state or to, you know, do things differently. They're they're, the rocks, done well. They're the rocks of Gibraltar for any community. They continue to provide employment, have a long-term vision, a long-term commitment to the region. And that's where I felt that we could do better with the family you know, business area. So I, um, I got the University of Pittsburgh to agree that I could create that. And really that became you know, the genesis of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence because we had now two things. If you think of the life cycle of entrepreneurial activity, we had the startup side, which was the small business development center. And then we had the family business side, which was really that mature, you know, good things in place, but how do we reinvent ourselves and become entrepreneurial again? And that was the two. And then later on, they became blended into the um, Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence with several other things that I created. As you said,
0: an underlying part of it were the family businesses that stay here and are a thriving part of the community for employment and and for people to want to be here and make a difference. And your center ultimately, call it IEE just for short, how many family businesses did you work with over, let's say, I don't know what period of time, if you want to say the 30 years, but just in ballpark, can you give a
1: sense? Oh, it was well over a thousand for sure during that period of time. And then in two thousand. In 10, I created a membership program because up till that point, we were one off, you know, you would call us or you would hear um, an ad or whatever it is, you know, we'd speak at a program and you call us for assistance. My board said, listen, instead of like living on the, you know, waiting for someone to help us out. Um, let's create a membership organization so we can continually c- and consistently help. And so we did that. And at that point in time, we ended up with about 350 closely held businesses, you know, you know, mostly family businesses, but some of them might be two families or a group of entrepreneurs that had moved past the startup phase. And were looking at how to, you know, really build sustainability and capability in their team that were part of the organization. And you know, we just continued. I think at one point we got up to close to 500 members um, annually that were, that belonged.
0: In your years and working with family businesses, when the next generation got their new role, right, when the next generation came up to Gen 3 or Gen 4, what does that look like normally? Do they sort of live in status quo for a while before they're comfortable leading change, or are they leading it before they even get the
1: baton? How does that typically happen? That's a really great question, and I want to say that every family is unique. They do this in a different way. I can say that today, you know, and really over the last seven years, there's been much more discussion and activities and learning about family business than there has been in the past. You know, in 1989-90, in when we really launched the Family Enterprise Center, it was it was misunderstood and nascent because people would go, Oh, it's all those rich kids, you know, that are entitled and you know, they've inherited, you know, this business and this wealth and they're not doing anything. And, you know, maybe there was some of that. I would say in general, you know, that as the world has evolved today, the idea that you know, a a second generation in particular, you know, they're respectful of the founding generation, the first generation. They don't like to rock the boat. You know, they like to make sure that, um, you know, dad or mom or whoever is that senior generation founder and leader, you know, are okay with what they're doing. And so they tend to be risk adverse um, and, and be, you know, caretakers or placeholders. That's changed, I'd say, definitely in the last seven to 10 years where, Not only they they get in and they don't rock the boat day one, they might be doing it through their college projects or sometimes high school projects saying, hey, I think this is something we could consider or do differently. Um, But, you know, in general, a family needs good communication and good collaboration. So no one feels threatened. You know, I used to hear all the time, you know, listen, we're fine. You know, everything's great. Our profits are great. Revenue is great you know, why be the spouting whale? Because you know what happens is the spouting whale gets harpooned. We're fine. And um, and that when, you know, in some families that goes on for a long time until there's a big hiccup, like a pandemic, you know, like a, a labor shortage, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things. And all of a sudden there, the family goes, oh, maybe we should have been forward planning a little bit stronger or more proactively. And I think that's where Um, You see today families looking for that, especially family leaders, you know, where is that innovation coming from? Because it's not just in their products and services over the last, you know, five, seven years. It's in their use of technology uh, and it's in their um, labor pool and their um, labor, you know, activities. Uh, As you look at employment today needs more than just a paycheck. You know, a lot of things they need to innovate into. How do we market Um, You know, I can, every traditional area of business today needs innovation and smart, strong family businesses get that and are actively involved with it. Yeah, and it probably
0: involves their teams around them, that they're driving the culture from the top and giving the permission, if you will, for the rest of the organization to look for opportunities for not only continuous improvement, but innovation, which takes something to another level. Whether it's adjacent change or a completely new market or a completely new service. And that I find in conversations sometimes it, with companies, it's harder for them to really make lasting change unless they have the keys, so to speak. I've talked with some next generation CEOs, and when they say, Yeah, you know, I kind of have half a key, or I want to make change, but you know, there's always a but, right? Whether it's my dad is chairman and we're not really ready. What do you think are some of the things holding companies back? You you mentioned risk aversion. I totally understand that and the financials needing to be there. But do they see it as R&D, you know, and that invest for the future? Or is it more of like where you were just talking about where, oh no, we need to do something different. There's something, we didn't see it coming. So now we're reacting.
1: Yeah, and so I, I think those are, you know, your your three, you know, sort of, you know, stories. There are all, you know, to, again, every family is unique. So all of, I've seen all of them. Part of what I, you know, recommend in earlier the better is to have that kind of communication and that collaboration, so that all the family understands the culture, and the the culture of the family business is really rooted in their values. So as the next generation, if you don't, if you haven't really set your values. You know right now you know it's time to just you know block the time you know this weekend next weekend and say we really need to have you know a, and there's lots of good data points out there, but a good a good process to understand what are our five top common core values, and then how do we make those alive in our business so that no matter what kind of change we're looking at thinking about innovation itself we're we're allaying the fears because you know change happens when people feel, you know, comfortable that it's going to be a thoughtful process. It's it's not going to take two or three years. It's going to be a thoughtful process, but we need to move this forward and, and stop being fearful of change. And especially as, you know, the older you get, the more fearful you are of change. Let's just stay where we are and not worry about it. But getting back to your core values on a regular basis, especially as you're going through times where it's important to Um, Think about what's next in the market. What's the market telling you? uh, How do we move forward as a group? And I think it's not only the family team, but it's the team within the company itself. Because many times, you know, and I'll use the example of the IT area. Those are people that have been with the company, you know, treasured employees, you know, for 35 or 50 or 60 years because they've grown up, you know, with the family business but sometimes they can be barriers to change as well. And I, you know, I've been with so many families where, you know, go, I, I think that you know, your accounting system or your financial system, your supply system needs a little bit of modernization. Oh, they're like, oh no, Mary or John and the accounting department would never let that happen. Well, we got to find a way to bring Mary and John along because, you know, because they're comfortable with their system. And I've seen, I've seen in the last five years ledger systems by pencil, you know, that are still being deployed <laughs> wow. by Mary or John. Okay. We need to move the whole team forward and I'll give, uh, you know, just one sample, um, you know, case study of why that's important in, in the last few years. Uh, I have a family, a national family, uh, highly recognized, uh, if I told you the name and, in their brand and so forth, and they're in the hospitality and, um, I'll say fast food business and, you know, two that have been really hammered over the last, you know, five months. And so the family came together and said, wait a minute, you know, we're second and third generation, but our first generation was very entrepreneurial. You know, we've been somewhat entrepreneurial in second and third, but we need to to, to be more. And so they really went back to their entrepreneurial spirit, read some of the history not only, um, you know, in the second generation who knew it, really well because it was their father, but the third generation and saying, how did grandpa and great grandpa in this case um, take advantage of the opportunities that were out there and be opportunistic. And so they went back to their, to their values that he was very innovative. He was opportunistic. He took advantage of looking around the market. He didn't um, what I call belly button gaze. Uh, He was actually picked his head up and looked around and saw what was happening and where his company you know, could take advantage of things. Um, they looked at their financial strength, where, uh, well, which is a value because they, they never live at the end of their paycheck or the end of their debt, or they're constantly looking at, you know, how do we have the resources to move forward? Professional integrity was always a big part of their company. And so they really agonized over some of the things that came out, like the PPP and, you know, other, other kinds of government uh, help. Like how does that work for our business today and tomorrow? And then um, they brought the management employees together because they were worried because most of them, if not ninety percent, were you know on layoff because of the industries they're in and everything being closed. And so the CEO, who is a family member right now, you know, was really sending out you know twice a month incredibly important letters about what the family owners were thinking about. They were talking about some of the innovations that were on their minds. They were forming virtual teams um, to really work on some of these, you know, to create solutions or options for some of the things that they were thinking about when the world reopens. And so it was really important to go back to their values and look and have that as the basis for how they were going to look at innovation and change uh, when you know, the world reopens. And I think they're going to be in an absolutely great place. That's right. I think that's right. There's a lot
0: of people and companies focusing on the core, which is the right thing to do, right? Buttoning up the financials, making sure they have money in the bank, securing all the things from the government that they can. And that's sort of step one. And that's a place to be for sure. And then not giving up on investing in the innovation side of the business. There's a, a wonderful article and research around that from McKinsey that came out recently. And then also, of course, the classic HBR study. I, I wrote a blog post about this quite recently, and I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes. It's the companies who protect the core you know, do the operational effectiveness work, do the belt tightening, if you will, whatever they need to do to make sure that they're financially sound. But at the same time, they're balancing their R&D, their innovation work and the key initiatives to make sure that dynamic shifts in the market that they are continuing to invest. And that's not an easy thing to do, but that starting from the top, and driven all the way through the company and that culture back to the values, as you pointed out, all those things tying together. So it's the companies that invest in both and continue to have that balance and not walk away, if they can financially, of course, not walk away from those initiatives. So
1: I, I love that you shared that example. Good, good. I think those are all important. And you know, sometimes with families, again, as you had summarized, there's a reluctance to Change or to do things, there's a cultural issue, and I encourage families not only to you know go out there and look at um, you know some you know having dad, mom, or the senior generation, whatever, to really feel comfortable by looking at okay, I, it's not son or daughter, you know, cousin, nephew, whatever, saying do this or do that. Let's look at what others are doing, and that's where you know just bringing in a TED Talk. know, or recommending a TED Talk to look at, you know, together, whether it's on, you know, culture change, leadership, innovation, you know, it's really, it helps, you know, have another expert, so to speak, you know, in the room. And then, you know, the Family Business Magazine is a, you know, um, a national, you know, international now, you know, magazine out of Philadelphia that's really incredible. It's chock full of family stories that have a long-term view. You know, we're going to remain a family-held, family-owned company you know, for at least until the end of, of the earth, which is what one family told me. And so <laughs> they have to have a way not only to innovate for today, but also preparing the the generation for tomorrow because the you know the research is is that families typically grow faster than the wealth. And so not everybody can take a paycheck out of the company. So how are we going to manage ownership into the future so that We don't have some that work in the company, but then there's others outside the company waiting for their distribution check. So there's a lot of good, you know, best practices out there, how to balance all of that. Think about it. Think about what works for your family. And that's, you know, a really important part of preparation as well. I want to switch gears
0: a little bit and talk about your decision to retire. And you went through your own succession process because you ran IEE for 30 years. And what was it like for you to go through the process?
1: You know, I, I would say a uh, great question. And it's, you know, that's probably like another three hour, you know, webinar to talk about that. But it, you know, it was, it was a hard process. I had been going through it with family leaders. I believed and I taught in the research show, you know, timely succession is really important. And um, it, it, it helps, you know, really that next generation to, you know, move into leadership and help, you know, to really flourish and grow in their ideas and, and the next generation. So here I am teaching at the family businesses. And I had one of my, uh, so I had at that point, we were 24 employees at the Institute or IEE at Pitt. And I had uh, one, I had five direct reports and one of them came to me and said, you know, and at your age and your energy, you're never going to retire. So there's no room for any of us to move up and do things that we want to do. And I said, well, I always thought that I gave everybody a lot of room and a lot of flexibility and, you know, all that kind of thing. And they said, yeah, you do, but it's not the same, you know, because I tend to be, you know, a pretty, you know, I, I don't want to say aggressive, but, um, you know, forward thinking, always moving um, person. And and so so I I got that message and I thought about it for a while. And then, you know, a lot of things were happening at the university. I felt I had a really good team of people. Um, my board supported that. The second part of it is my youngest daughter had twins um, and my oldest daughter had a single uh, all within three months of each other. And I thought, you know what, I, would, I need a little more flexibility in my schedule to spend some time with my uh, new grandchildren. And, and so that was, it, the timing was right. It was perfect. Uh, my successor, it was a great uh, search that my board did with the uh, provost of the university. Uh, there was a big change of moving uh, the IEE out of the business school and into the provost office and, and ultimately the chancellor's office where it resides now. So it's university wide resource And, um, you know, everything came together. So timing in life is everything as well as your your ability. I have to say to every leader, it is an emotional time. And, you know, doing it at the end of the day, why you did it still feels, you know, helps you feel good and, and, you know, go back and think about it in those moments, especially in those last weeks as you're packing and doing your things to say, wow, I should do this or I should do that. But it's, it's good. If you've done the right thing, preparing your organization, preparing your successor, everything's good. And my successor is still someone who I interact with frequently today. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that it continues. As, um, and I'll just give one, one thought is that many of the entrepreneurship, you know, slash family uh, enterprise programs at universities never last outside of the founder. And and today that's changed a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. And I continue to, you know, speak with and discuss with universities how to make that happen and continue uh, onward because it is important and it doesn't have to end with the founder. It can, you know, succession done right and done timely, it can continue. That's a fantastic legacy. You created something so impactful in the
0: region, and then you've taken that on the road. You've taken it to other universities and consult, and that's incredible. And I'm sure you're very, very proud of those accomplishments. I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about some of the work that you've done and still do once you left IEE, because you've continued to work with families in what you've called the complex pathways of their lives and you help them in a lot of ways in areas for their strategy around philanthropic initiatives like family foundations. Can you talk a
1: little bit about that? As I left and, um, you know, moved into my retirement phase and spent some good time with my grandchildren that first year, I have to say that as I was looking out as what's next for families and that became really in my mind making the family enterprise alive and that is that as the the business itself is successful and thriving the family will not you know put every dollar that they earn in profits back into the business or you know in distributions to increase their lifestyles many families were thinking about how do we give back to our community how do we do things you know even more as a family so we have that activity doing together and many of them started off with a family foundation and saying, you know, let's, let's look at, you know, maybe they created, you know, a family foundation on paper, but what they wanted to do is have it, have this be a, you know, a really feel good, um, beneficial activity of our family, you know, going forward, not only for the current generations, but the future. And they want to give back and impact those things that, um, that either have impacted their business like in one family uh, locally and, and workplace safety and worker safety is where their family foundation is, is focused. And others will be on things that are, have, um, have, have either impacted the family or, you know, are of interest to the family. You know, and, and Lord knows today, especially, there's so many needs that a family can get overwhelmed. And many families want to move for, from, you know, what we call checkbook philanthropy is you get all these requests at the mail and you write checks to really like, you know, studying the issues, studying the idea of where I can make an impact and, and those kinds of things. So helping families, you know, craft their vision of what they'd like to accomplish, uh, what are what are the topics or the interests that they have in terms of, of impacting and then how do they come together and make decisions not only today but you know putting some structure in place so that in the future um, the next generation is being brought in earlier and earlier I had a a couple tell me a, a few years ago saying you know and I'm listening to what you're saying you know we've given our kids everything the best Houses, the best education, the best vacations, you know everything, the best experiences. One thing we haven't given them enough of is empathy, empathy for their fellow man, empathy for what's happening in the world today, and how we can impact. And we're going to really focus on that through our family foundation of learning others that were born or maybe uh, are find themselves in situations that are less, um, you know, less uh, thriving than our kids were raised in. So it, it's, it, it's a win for everybody. And then, you know, moving from that, you know, in the, and the, where I've spent my time, not only the family foundations, but families have come to together and they're doing more direct investing together on things like that. They're investing in other, um, you know, opportunities that maybe this family or that family puts on the table and say, you know, I'd really like to have some other family investors involved with this. So a lot more direct investing going on now than in the past. And then I think there's a couple of other things, you know, in terms of the family office um, environment where I I have spent the last four years um, dedicated to the family office exchange out of Chicago, working with, you know, high net worth families all over the world in the sense that, okay, we've made this money. Is this a hundred year money? Is a hundred and fifty year money? I mean, how do we prepare our family to, um, you know, utilize the success of our ancestors while at the same time preparing for future generations as well? And there's a, there's a great book out there by um, a rabbi, uh, Stephen Leder, that I used to bring to Pittsburgh, you know, at least once a year at my program called More Money Than God. And it's really about the fact that we are citizens and all in this together and how can we make this, how can we make this work for ourselves, as individuals, for our family, and then as, in the community in which we find ourselves.
0: That's beautiful. And it ties together so many things because you're using the entrepreneurial process to work with these families, to craft their vision for what's next as they look at these other chapters in their lives, you know, around the philanthropic pillar or the investing pillar and it comes back to the value. So I'm going to take a look at that book and I'll include that in the show notes as well. So thank you for sharing that. One question that I wanted to ask you is about statistics. I know there's so many that probably are swirling in your head. What is a statistic that when you think about it, you wish was different or asked differently just for sake of conversation that you think is going to be different in the next 10, 20 years that people are really focused on when it's pertaining to family
1: businesses? You know, that's a that's a really good good question and a good thought. And you know, as you're you're asking that, the first thing that it, it's you know it's a statistic that's different in every country. But overall, you hear shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And I think part of that is that there was not the time And and, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny to read about it even online, because in every language and every culture, that's a common saying. And the reason why is the first generation was the entrepreneurial generation, but what made them strong as a business leader also made them weak and the sense that, um, you know a successful entrepreneur often is not the most democratic is not the most collaborative. Let me get everybody's opinion and think where we're headed with this, so they can be pretty aggressive and domineering um because they they have they're they're focused on mission and what what do I need to do to be successful in my business today tomorrow and next year so they they have a very focused business you know mindset, and that doesn't necessarily make them the most collaborative kind you know, high communicative father or mother um, as they're raising their next generation. So the next generation is coming into the business and they figured out, okay, the way for me to get along with everybody is, you know, sort of stay below radar, you know, don't, you know, put my head up, because it gets, you know, it's like the whack-a-mole thing, I get, you know, in trouble, so they became placekeepers, you know, much more than, you know, dynamic business leaders, and so by the third generation, the money was starting to run out, maybe the innovation, as we've talked about, or the technology, or the personnel were all aging, so they weren't paying as much attention to, okay, how do we keep rejuvenating and rethinking where we are, and there's a, Fellow out of Southern California is Shaka Desis, who um, I brought some—not him, but some of his people—to Pittsburgh when I was uh, at the institute. And, and really, they—they've studied hundreds of thousands of companies, and what they show is that when you play, you know, the bell curve of business is very much there. So you have the beginning, the go-go, the startup years, all of those things that make you either strong or kill you off because you've expanded too fast and you've run out of cash, or you have moved into new products and services where you have no capacity or capabilities, and that's caused you to to fail. A lot of things on the way up can derail you, but let's just say you're on that left side of the bell curve moving up, you plateau at the top, It doesn't mean you can stay there. It means you have to think, okay, what's next? So that I start my new bell curve, whether it's, you know, new markets, new regions, uh, new products, new services, you know, new uh, employment, you know, managerial personnel, whatever, so that I don't slide off the right of the bell curve, which is, you know, where there's Death Valley if we don't make some changes. And so, you know, you look at all of those things and that's where the third generation sometimes inherits or takes over the business when it's really on that right-hand curve sliding downward. And all of a sudden they have a hole to dig out of that they may or may not be prepared to do if the second generation had done some of the heavy lifting of preparation and thinking, you know, more than short term, but more, you know, much more longer term, five, seven, 10 years, you know, out in terms of their business itself. And so those are things that I think that's the statistic that is uh, I think it's being impacted today because everyone understands there's no placeholders. There's no placekeepers here. We need to continually challenge ourselves. And having said that, the second thing I see more and more of all the time, which is so great, and that is that the closely held family held business is creating either an advisory board of directors or a board of directors, and they're putting a couple Independence, meaning non family, non professional advisor, you know, not your, you know, accountant, CPA, attorney, insurance person, but really truly looking at your strategic plan, looking at your industry, where are we headed, and how would someone who has some subject matter expertise or some knowledge be, how would they add to our board in a good way? And I see more and more of that all the time because families were. You know, scared. You know, if I put somebody on a board or an advisory board, what if they fire me? What if they tell me I'm an idiot? You know, those kinds of things. Well, a good governance process done well, you're not going to be putting people on the board who are going to say those things, or in, in no way can they fire you because you're owners. But I think it's it's understanding the power they can do to really impact that shirt sleeves the shirt sleeves of three generations mantra.
0: I think you're right. I think there's a core theme of reigniting the entrepreneurial spirit, immature companies, and not being fearful of change. Having an independent board of advisors can be really effective as a way for companies to bring in diverse viewpoints and push the company forward on many fronts. But last question for you, I'd love to ask all of my guests if you have a favorite saying or mantra about entrepreneurship. I
1: would say that my favorite mantra, and I think it's come through here, is be enterprising in all that you do. There's innovation and opportunities everywhere and just learn of them, take advantage of them. And so be enterprising in all you do, wherever life finds you at that moment, think differently and think about how you're going to be able to or embrace something and talk about it and, and start to make it real. Well, thank you so much,
0: Anne, for being here today. And you've definitely sparked a lot of ideas to use that phrase. And you're an incredible person. And I just love how you shared your experience. So thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big for strategic planning with your team to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to schedule a call with me. I'd love to connect with you. Be sure to catch the next Succession Stories episode with more insights for next generation entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening.